Welcome to A Drink with a Friend. I'm Seth Haynes. And I'm Tish Oxenreiter. This is from my novel in progress, tentatively titled The Hole in Corner. Summer afternoons stretched thick and sticky as bread dough when Clementine was a girl, wandering the aisles of McIntyre's Mercantile when her daddy ran the shop. She'd peek through the boxes of instant rice next to the Band-Aids to watch neighbors add items to their basket on the next aisle over, recognizing Miss Marlowe by the swish sound of her thighs and polyester pants and Mr. Jenkins by the incessant clearing of his throat. He'd later teach her algebra class, and his throat clearing would portal her back to summers of going barefoot in the mercantile, running across the street for leftover popcorn from the movie house, sneaking out back to the alley full of trash cans and old pallets from their store, and the ones on either side to play store with the neighbor kids. He'd clear his throat once more and follow with a Miss Green, and she'd snap back to the fluorescent lights of math class and wonder how much it cost for a passport and a visa to Cambodia. She had always been a weak, tired girl. Every morning, her mother set Clementine's pills next to a pint jar of water on her nightstand, and she'd take them without knowing why. Weak bones and muscles, her mother explained. Clem could play in the neighborhood with the other kids, but she never took ballet class or played on the spring soccer team. One school year, she took an art class with some of the gray-haired neighborhood ladies down at the county art museum, and for nine months she took piano lessons from Mrs. Chu a few blocks over until it was time for a recital when Clem's mother disapproved of how many hours she'd have to practice. It's not good for your circulatory system. And that was that. For months later, Clementine would reluctantly wave at Mrs. Chu at the mercantile, and she'd nod in reply and walk quickly to the produce for lettuce and carrots. What is it I have exactly? Clementine asked her mother several years later, a teenager in search of autonomy. Nancy Green sighed. It's complicated. A cocktail of issues. Applejack and grenadine? She knew how to make it Jack Rose from Hemingway. More like chronic fatigue and a weak immune system. Doctor's visits had then become an annual checkup, a rinse and repeat of rigmarole and jargon that took less time than a kettle to boil. The nurse would take her vitals, the doc would come in and look at his clipboard, scribble, ask if there were any new symptoms from the past 12 months, then with insouciance, good to see you green ladies, keep on up with the meds and we'll see if there's any trouble. In her mind, he lived at the clinic and slept in his lab coat. A trip to Yellowstone was her one request for a high school graduation gift. She wanted to pile in the back seat with bags crammed behind her and a stack of magazines and crossword puzzles in the seat pocket in front, like she'd imagined their next-door neighbors Kyra and Ben did when they visited cousins every summer. Her grandparents would sit on either side so they could nap leaned against the windows, and her mother and father would pilot from the front, travel mugs and trail mix between them. They'd fight over the speed limit and where to stop for lunch. Rosie would step incessantly on Clem's foot, and the motel rooms at night would smell foreign and formidable. After the graduation ceremony down at the football stadium, the McIntyre Green clan dined at a table for five at the local bed and breakfast, where Clem was presented with chicken fricassee for the first time and a box with a new green dress ensconced in tissue. She went to work the next day, green apron over her new green dress. That summer, the station wagon barely left the driveway. So, Tish, yes. what are you drinking today? Well, it's making its debut for the first time on the show, which I find surprising, and that's kombucha. Do you drink kombucha? I love kombucha. I do, too, and I can't believe we haven't had it on yet. So I'm drinking, it's called um, Hum Kombucha, and it is from Bend, my beloved Bend, where we used to live in Oregon mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. a little while ago. And But you can find it at Target in Texas. I don't know if you can find it everywhere in the country, but target of all places and it's oh. really really good so coconut lime kombucha there you go that's amazing you know the most amazing things sort of come out of bend have you <laughs> or, do you know this yeah like good people good drinks just it's a, it sounds like a little gem of a place in the world i never heard of it until we moved there and then i hear about it all the time still yeah yeah yeah, yeah. all right what are you drinking well, I have uh, I've gone highbrow here. I've spent a lot of money, dropped a lot of coins, so that we could talk about this uh, unadulterated, un 
uh, actually quasi filtered <laughs> water. Water. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got this uh, little little uh, fitness device, this little Garmin, um, because as we talked about, I've been moving my body more and needing to keep up with some things a little bit better. And one of those things is water intake. And Tish, I got to tell you, I am woefully inadequate on my water intake mm-hmm. and trying to keep up with it. Um, this little uh, watch has is telling me all the time uh, that I'm constantly dehydrated. Yeah. So yeah. I'm just trying to take care of myself, drink a little water. That's good for you. I've heard that if you are thirsty, then that means you're dehydrated. Meaning like if you are thinking about how you need some water, then that means you need water, which sounds obvious. <laughs> but if you ever wonder if you need more water, then that automatically means you do. I don't know. That's what well, I just remember hearing. An yeah. oddly human and intuitive <laughs> way to think about it, isn't it? There you go. All right. Well, good for you. Way to be healthy yeah, and um, adult. <laughs> and um, so, Stephanie Smith, what are you drinking today? So I've got here with me a Wegmans brand, plain sparkling water. <laughs> um, however, um, it, it has a little bit of a mixed tail to it, which I will explain myself. So, um, oh, I, I just... Uh, uh, my husband and I just had our daughter who was born in December. So this past summer I was very pregnant and, um, and I really, really love my um, hops mm-hmm. in the summer, especially. <laughs> so mm-hmm. my husband bought literally, I think like 15 pounds of hops, which have been living in our fridge. I don't know how for that wow. long. And as it happens, you can make hop tea really easily. You just like throw some hops in, like you steep them like tea leaves. Um, And we discovered that if you mix the hops with, which is non-alcoholic, it's literally tea. um, But if you mix the hops with tea flavors, it can be very fun. So the Mm. one that we really like is, um, I think it's called like raspberry champagne. It's a white tea and it's a really nice flavor pairing. So I just kind of hack up my own system and make little tea ice cubes and then pop them into my Wegmans brand sparkling water. So that is the the very long story of what I'm drinking. Man, I'm going to have to try that. That sounds amazing. It's delicious. I just connect hops with beer. So I don't know what hops taste like outside of beer. What do they taste like? Um, super hoppy, which is my favorite thing. (laughs) Which is like saying a strawberry tastes like a strawberry. Like, what do I don't know what hops taste like? You have to experience it. It's bitter. (laughs) It's bitter. Mm. Kind of. Um, I think ours are citra hops, so they're like citrusy and bitter, which is why like a a sweeter tea is a good counterbalance. So, like chamomile and hops is another one that's really good. Um. Mm. Yeah, straight up hop tea is kind of a lot. Okay. But yeah. Yeah. Bitter tannin. Yeah. I'm gonna have to try that because I mean, does it taste remotely like beer at all? Um, the flavor, like the hop flavor, which is what I was after, mm-hmm. is delicious. And <laughs> sometimes like we'll go get curry takeout or something and I'll be like, I don't really want a beer. I really want a hop water, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, but it's not beer. Like, don't let anybody tell you that it's beer because it's not, but it is delicious. Well, I'm intrigued because I don't, um, consume gluten anymore, but I did enjoy beer back in the day. So I might have to try that. Oh yeah. Well, we can send you some probably from our 25 (laughs) pounds in our fridge. (laughs) Really cool. I I'm in, I'm in on that too. So I guess, um, what our listeners need to know is that by introducing a third drink this week, we are actually introducing a conversation partner for our conversation. And it happens to be my very good friend, uh, an editor of two of my two books, which (laughs) would be 100% of them. Um, and just one heck of a human freaking being <laughs> stephanie smith yeah that's so, gonna go in all my bios it, it should one heck of a human freaking being <laughs> i think i think that was actually in the original draft of uh ee e. cummings uh poem um uh, but i think he cut the freaking out and just made it 
human merely being. I think he changed the freaking to merely. That's what happened. Mm-hmm. His loss. Yeah, yeah, his loss. But so today on the show, we want to kind of uh, continue the conversation that we had last week, which was about writing as a craft, writing for the beauty, for the sake of writing, creating for the sake of creating. It wasn't just about writing. We talked about all different sorts of things. But as we were talking about who could sort of come in and 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 talk about it from um, maybe even a professional standpoint, somebody who reads a lot of writing, who reads a lot of, you know, writing for people who want to uh, publish, but also just loves the written word. We thought who better to ask uh, to come talk about the beauty and the art of craft than Stephanie. And so here you are. Um, and so with that, why don't you give us just a little introduction of sort of who you are and what you're about? Sure. Well, excited to be here uh, with you both So and be in this conversation. Um, I love this topic. I can't wait to talk about it. Uh, but yeah, so I've been in publishing for my whole career. Uh, I've worked at a couple different houses, most recently as associate publisher at Zondervan Books. And even more recently, I've just joined the editorial team at Baker Books. Um, so that's my 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 current home. I'm a, I'm a big reader, writer personally for my own personal enjoyment. And I also, again, for my personal enjoyment, have host a email newsletter called Slant Letter, which is for writers really talking about the craft and the soul of what, what we do as writers. I figured there's plenty of other publishing and how to get published and how to publish well resources out there. So it's not that, but it yeah. is about the craft itself and what what we love about it and what we can learn from it in writing as in life, as I find there's so many parallels between those two things. Yeah. And, you know, on a more personal lo- note, that's professional. Personally, my husband and I live in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, on a couple of blocks away from the Susquehanna River. We just moved here over the summer. Uh, which is a weird time to move, but here we are. And then we just welcomed our daughter, our first, in December. So we are in the thick of it and Mm -hmm. loving it. (laughs) Well, congrats on that. And thank you for writing Slant Letter. I've been a longtime subscriber for it. And to me, it feels like a little reset button. Um, oh, that's yeah. great. That rem- whenever you publish, you remind me why <laughs> I do what I do, because um, sometimes it's easy for us to forget, which is sort of what we talked about last week. So thank you for that. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, I am curious, Stephanie, in your experience in the industry, you know, we ha- most of our listeners are not professional writers, but we have a whole lot of readers. And so I'm curious what your take has been a little bit behind the curtain on just what you can see as a reader, what's different about writing between someone who writes for the paycheck versus someone who writes for the love of it? What do you see that's different? Yeah, um, I perceive a difference in my work and as I review potential book projects between professional communicators and writers who just love the cadence of a phrase. Mm. And I don't want to create a false binary there. There can and are a lot of people who do both really well. But there's also professional communicators who do what they do for a living and they love it on that plane. But they they wouldn't even self-proclaim to be a writer necessarily. Um, And there are plenty of writers who love what they do and hate speaking, hate, you know, being on on the air, on podcasts, would never, you know, have never been published at all. So there's a full range and 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 quite a, a mix in between. And I and I would never say one is better than the other. But I think to your question, I don't know any writers who put themselves through the writing process if they don't love it. Um, Mm. I I don't know anyone who says, yes, I will voluntarily sign up for existential agony (laughs) and, you know, rough draft rewrites and a heaping helping of imposter syndrome 
I could go on. I, I don't I don't know anybody who who aims for that willingly unless they can't not do it. So that's just if that's a motivator, if that's a driver, then you should be writing and I don't care what you do with it. It mm. it, it almost doesn't matter. But if that's if if you're if you're a reader, um chances are you probably do love writing um because you appreciate it so much and you understand it better than most people do. So I I also challenge a little bit people who are huge readers and there's a lot of them and I bet there's a lot of you listening who you're huge readers, you you love books and you have great taste and and you would very quickly say, "Oh no, I'm not a writer." Maybe not right now, but do you have it in you? Um mm. I I I I would question that. Yeah, that's good. What do you what do you think just, you know, from your own your own personal uh writing? What do you think is the motivation behind the best writing? Um and and let me set this up a little bit. You know, we were talking last week about um how there are sometimes as writers where um we create things just because they're there. Um, I mean, people may find this hard to believe, but Tish and I both have written things, scrawled quick poems, taken scrap lines down, um, you know, written longer form pieces that have never seen the light of day and may not ever see the light of day. And there's a particular reason that that we think we do that, I think. Um, but but what do you find is the reason behind those those writers, writers that you were talking about, the ones who love the craft? What's the motivation? Yeah. Um, I would be so fascinated to put that question to the writers that I speak to, because I think everyone would put their own language on it in a way that would be meaningful. My stab at it would be, I think the motivation for entering into, you know, that deep, dark cave of the creative process is it's two things and maybe they're the same thing. But a big word comes to my to my mind is witness, and we just want to witness an idea mm. or a story or a question, and and the beauty of that too is that again it's beside the point whether you publish that or keep it to yourself forever, and I would imagine that the reason that you two have created these works that have never seen the light of day is because you wanted. There was something important enough to you that you wanted to witness it by putting it down mm. in print. Mm-hmm. And that's meaningful, uh, no matter what happens to it from there. And and I I mean, it depends on the genre too. Like I'm a big fiction reader. Never I, I don't I'll never say never, but never in my adult life have I attempted to write any fiction. But I hear fiction writers talk about so I, I don't relate to this experience, but I hear fiction writers talk about they have like visitations from these characters mm-hmm. who demand for their stories to be told. Mm-hmm. And to me that's that's a writer sitting down and saying, I have to witness like what's been given to me here. So that's one genre. Maybe for personal narrative, it's I need to process my experience and bear witness to what has happened to me in order to make sense of it, which is also very meaningful. So I think there's just something about when a story or an idea grabs you, you you do feel compelled to almost be a steward creatively of that and just see it at all of its angles mm-hmm. and all of its dimensions. And writing is the avenue by which you can take a look at whatever it is that is demanding to be looked at. Mm. You say that we write to lay witness to something and yet it's also okay when we just keep it to ourselves. So I am curious if in your experience you have, um, you know, I also think that some of why we write is to, you know, that quote about we read to know we're not alone. Sometimes Mm -hmm. I feel like that's why we write as well. Um, And so you know, I'm thinking of the listener here who's not a blogger, who's not a published author, and yet she wants to write to lay witness to something, and yet she wants to also perhaps connect with somebody else. What do you see yeah. 
bearing fruit by, um, you know, sharing your work, but in a way, maybe not necessarily for accolades or to be a thought leader or an influencer, but just for that knowing you're not alone. Yeah. I think that is also a really powerful motivator. And I mean, there's right. Like there's, there's one way to process your life's events could be to keep a personal journal and never share it, but that doesn't bring you into community. Um, So if, if part of the desire is that community, I think it's really powerful. Like I'm thinking back um, even over the past few years, you know, having just close friends who have shared with me their personal writing, almost like journal entries. Um, And it's brought us closer together and it's been a real gift to be able to, yeah, witness what somebody's walking through. Um, And, and that was like a really private exchange. This is not like publishing a blog Mm. post or, you know, putting it out there on the internet for everyone to see. Um, But I think you can even be selective in who your readers are to the point of, I just really want my sister to read this or my friend or, um, you know, someone who has, has a similar life experience or, or even just you want to get to know better or um, that's like, that's like not a thing that people do a lot of, but I wish we would do more of it. Yeah. Mm. That's cool. Yeah. There's a, there's a slowness to what you're talking about. Um, when we're going back and forth in conversation, I mean, this, this whole podcast is about conversation with friends. And I think there are times when Tish and I both said things and then uh, thought about it 24 hours later and thought, man, I wish I would have said this, or I wish we could have riffed here or whatever. Um, when you're writing, you have the opportunity to sort of slow down and sort of more methodically think through and process and lay witness to the deeper things. Um, and I think that's something that you've always been uh, good at, even with my own writing and saying, okay, let's slow down. Let's think about the things we want to process. And um, it, it's really a skill that you bring. And I happen to know that it's a skill that you bring to your editorial process because it's a skill that you hone in your personal life. I, I know that you've written things that will never see the light of day. Um, at least not for a while. I wish they would selfishly um, because it's beautiful writing. It's good writing. And, and, and when you go to the page, the, the, the few things that I've read that you've written, when you go to the page, it's um, really to express something of another thing that Tish and I like to talk about, which is the, the deeper sacramental nature of the world, how God fills all things. Can you talk a little bit about how writing for you is a way of communing with, channeling, thinking about um, uh, the the divine things as they enter sort of into our world, into your world? Yeah, I I I love that question, um, and I know that it's one. It's a topic that's very important to you, of course, and comes out in your writing, Seth. And mm. yeah. Uh, the sacraments are of great personal import for me. And one of the ways that I think about writing and how it invites us into this sacred space of divine encounter is in almost a very literal way. Um, I think of the incarnation is quite simply the word made flesh and to me, that is the the design for how the world was was and is supposed to work. Um, God's good word speaks life, and it becomes enfleshed and embodied in our lives. Mm. Um, and if you twist that around, if you think about any word that does not become flesh or becomes kind of a uh, unwhole um, embodiment of that word, um, that's where things go sour really quickly. Mm. I mean, that's like the definition of a lie, (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. for example, for just one small example. So I'm really interested in the ways that, you know, I've I've got um, my bookshelves in my office, and I'm really interested in the ways that what I read 
and the good words and the good works of writers that I read becomes flesh in my life by how I live that out. And of Mm. course, I do that imperfectly like we all do, but that's the hope. And also for any writer who is discounting their work or second guessing, know that those words matter immensely because that's their potential to literally become made tangible in people's lives. Um, And I think, you know, back to the sacramental question, you know, God is very much at work in that process. And Mm -hmm. that's very honoring uh, to God to, to have our words set the stage for that kind of wholeness in the lives of others. Mm. Yeah. I love that um, too, because when you're talking about the words sort of uh, becoming enfleshed and coming off the page um, and the sacramental nature really of art in general, what I love about this, I know you work in a particular space, more in a faith space of, of the literary world, but this like applies across the board, like good words from, you know, fiction, from poetry, um, from, you know, completely secular uh, sources or, or places like they, they can do the same thing. I, as you were talking, I was thinking about this sprawling novel that I read years ago called City on Fire. And I think about 15 people that I know uh, have read it and have not had the same takeaway that I have. But mm-hmm. at the end of the sprawling novel, this character makes this complete life shift. And it was kind of a B character. It wasn't a character that you were sort of expecting the story to actually be about. And, and I still think about that character shift and how it, the, the shift was from chaos to something more like order and wholeness and um, how, you know, it was a novel that was uh, again, sprawling, chaotic, 900 and something pages. Um, and I realized at the end of it that I read the entire thing for the last like two pages and I think about that all the time and how, you know, my life can actually go from something like chaos to order. And that was from somebody who I don't know if Garth Rose Kahlberg has any faith, espouses any faith. I don't know anything about him, really. I've never met him. We'll probably never meet him. Um, but his character did something for me. Um, and I think that's really important about really any art or any creative output, even if it's not writing, even if it's a painting, even if it's writing a letter to your best friend, even, you know, no matter what the, the, the creative output is, it has the ability to embody something uh, that's designed and to encourage, you know, someone across the canvas, across the page, across, you know, Tish and Kyle's example, across the, uh, the drywall, I don't know, whatever. Um, It it encourages uh, them to maybe be a little bit more human. And there's something about that um, for me that comes out in the writing process for other people, it comes out, you know, all over the place and all kinds of different, uh, crafts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and Stephanie, you know, for me, the sacraments, like one of the things I really love about them is that at the end of the day, they're not really about me. You know, mm-hmm. they, they point to beauty. They make me more human, but not because of anything I'm doing. <laughs> It's because of what they are in themselves. And so I think of that when I think of writing, um, I mean, honestly, in particular, good stories and and to take that idea of that we read and write to know we're not alone. To me, that's what the sacramental beauty of good writing and good reading does is that it, it envelops us into something bigger than ourselves, you know, um, other people the the divine, all these things that um, remind us of who we are in light of all the everything else, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, to me, that's exactly what it's about. You know, it's, it's, it is sacramental both in practice and in the sharing, you know, whether that's literally sharing a letter to your friend or publishing a book and everything in between. Yeah. I, that, I love that thought so much. And I, I think that's a very freeing thought to know that it's, not about you and and your your work is your art is not about you ultimately um but it's a portal to something greater have you all um seen the movie um, amelie amelie mm-hmm. yeah the french it's been film. a long time but yeah, yeah. yes yeah. it's been a long time there's a um there's a great quote from that film and uh the character says he is a fool who looks at the finger who points at the sky Mm. And I think that 
is just such a perspective shift to remember like any artist for any art form is just pointing to the good stuff um, and has done the work, you know, don't get me wrong, has done the work to create a frame for that. But ultimately it's, it's just a ushering towards something bigger, which is really exciting. It's, you know, it makes the work a privilege and an honor, but it also takes the pressure off, which can be a good and freeing reminder. Well, and maybe that's ultimately what um, we were getting at at the beginning of telling the difference between someone who's writing for the paycheck versus because they have something burning in their bones. Um, perhaps it's that little s- subtle shift, that one degree difference in reading something that you can tell was written because they had something in them that they wanted to lay witness to and had this need to share versus pointing to themselves. And I think we all, you know, as readers have read those books before. And so we know they exist. Um, But the ones that probably stand the test of time, the ones we love, the ones that we're going to be talking about 50 years from now are probably the ones that point to the sky and not back at ourselves. Yeah, yeah. And an interesting effect of that, too, is that if it's not about you, and I'm very much putting my editor's hat on here. But if it's if it's truly not about you, um, promote the heck out of that thing. If it's mm. something that you really believe in, it's not about you. So don't worry about it. Don't sweat it. Um, mm. If you've created something that gave you life and its core intent is to give life to your readers, please do not hold back on that. I find myself in a position of having that conversation or a similar one with authors all the time because I understand it's really daunting to say, you know, please buy my book um, as one example. But it's, again, if you've created something that is supposed to be a gift for your reader, like it's you're throwing a party, don't turn your guests away at the door. Um, Just it's a it's a gift so give it freely and generously and i think as you're saying tish and i I, yes agreed like we've all seen ways that that kind of promotion can leave a bad taste in our mouth and i think we've all seen ways that it can be really creatively and well done um so i it's it's a kind of i think it's a kind of surprise takeaway from that thought that if it's really not about you, then don't feel weird about promoting it because look at that sky. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. So it it, it just, it's a perspective shift, but I think again, that can be really freeing to realize it, it, it doesn't need to be a big production. It doesn't need to be unnecessarily about you. If you've got something really good to share. Yeah. There's a uh, there's a woman I follow on Instagram. Um, just started following, and I don't know how long she's been on. Her name is Sarah Billups. Do y'all know Sarah Billups by mm. chance? Mm. Um, nope. She's from Portland, Tish. So maybe mm. okay. you know there's some connection up. there, some Oregonian yeah. connection. Um, but she uh, dropped this little Instagram video today, and I and I you know listen, I'm I'm pretty vocal about my thoughts about Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and all those things. And both of you and many of the listeners have heard me rant about this for some time. Um, But, you know, she had this little uh, Instagram TV thing where she was just coming and saying, listen, I'm being really honest with you. I am here because I have something, a book um, that I hope will be published and I hope you will buy it. Um, And she said, but that's not really even the main reason I'm here. The main reason I'm here." Um, is because I want to find the people. It's sort of like a searching mission, a treasure hunt. You know, I want to find the people who um, ultimately need to hear my uh, what I've written, who, who need to see me point to the sky, who are looking for someone who points to the sky in a way that they'll understand. She didn't use that language. but um, and, and she's saying, you know, I'm looking for the people who feel misplaced, who feel disaffected by X, Y, Z. Um, who feel themselves too conservative to be here and too progressive to be there. Um, and she's kind of outlining her reasons um, for the space that she's uh, trying to curate for what she's trying to do. And as I watched, I found it really, really refreshing. I didn't feel hmm. like, I mean, she was upfront. Listen, I'm here because I have a book. 
Um, she was really upfront, but she also said um, there is a bigger, uh, there's a bigger purpose. There's a bigger meaning. There's a bigger reason why I'm here. And it's not just to shill, you know, it's not just to hawk some crap. Um, it's not just to run a grift. It's, it's actually to provide space for people. Um, so when, when we're all in this space and we see people, um, promoting their work and sometimes there's something that feels off about it. And then there's sometimes there's something that's very life giving about it. Um, because you sort of do this for a living, can you give words to the difference? Like what's the difference? Yeah. Well, that is refreshing. And I think the difference is just that it's transparency. And that starts even before you're messaging your audience. It starts with being honest with yourself. And I I think that's a constant project and it needs to be a constant project for writers who want to stay in touch with the very first spark that they felt to write. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's a one-time thing. I think it's a constant task to, you know, keep a little tuning fork in your heart and um, (laughs) know what's there. And it's okay to have multiple reasons. I think it's better to be upfront with yourself and say, these are my reasons for writing. And these are my personal publishing goals. I hear so, you know, so many writers that I talk to don't really know how to answer that question. Their goal is, is, um, is a one dimensional, I want to get published. Mm. And that can mean anything that can Mm -hmm. mean you self publish. That can mean you publish with a, a small independent house. That can mean you get picked up by one of the big, you know, New York giants that can mean you sell X many copies or XXX many copies. I mean, it can mean anything. So it, it takes an informed decision to know what are your publishing goals. And maybe your goals are, I want to work with a team who understands me. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's, don't really, I'll work with anybody so long as my message reaches as many people as possible. I mean, you get to decide, but knowing what your, what your goals are, stemming from what are the reasons that you chose to write in the first place and really, you know, gently interrogating yourself to find out why, why am I not content just writing this for myself or my local community? Why is it that I want to be traditionally published? Yeah. I want to be gentle about this, but I encounter too many aspiring writers who cannot answer that question because they haven't, confronted it yet in their in themselves. And if yeah. you don't know what your goals are going into the publishing process, I will tell you and any author, you guys can attest, any published author can attest, it will require so much more of you than you ever expected. <laughs> yes. Yeah. On yes. Every level, on a like pragmatic time level, an emotional level, it will require so much more of you than you ever expect. So going in with eyes wide open and saying, this is what I'm here for. And then afterward, you know, saying, this is great. Like I've been able to, you know, stick to my, what's important to me and publish according to my measure of success, which might not be somebody else's and that's fine. So you Mm -hmm. get to decide, just be honest with yourself, really ask those questions. Why? And, um, and then, you know, partner with people who can be good guides for you and help you meet those goals and help you create that vision for what you want your publishing to be. Hmm. Stephanie, I'm curious um, with you as an editor, but maybe even just also as a reader and also maybe Seth, you think about this too. um, What are some books that you want to see out in the world? Like, what are some of the things as those of us who love to read that you would love to see more of fiction or nonfiction? Oh, it's a fun question. My wish list. Um, (laughs) It's really also a hard question to answer because I don't like, usually my, I'll, I'll try to get more specific for you, but usually my answer to this question, when agents ask, what are you looking for? Or yeah, when aspiring authors ask, what are you looking for? What do you want to publish? And my answer is usually, I really don't care what you write about. 
as long as you feel like it is that message that you can't not write and there's mm. a, a, a ready, you know, readership for it. Writers who are just lit up about whatever it is they have to say. Um, that's, that's what I'm about. And, okay. and it's like passion, the passion of the author, because you need that to sustain you through the process. And it also shows in the power of your work and also ownership, um, which is some of what I was just talking about, taking ownership of your message and what you want it to accomplish. Those are two huge things for me. Um, but specifically, I'm really interested in books on formation. Um, and, and that can be like very specifically spiritual formation, but it can also be, it can advertise itself as such, you know, spiritual formation, or it cannot. Um, I've published yeah. a number of books that are some of my top of mind that I think of in this category that are, you know, paradigm shifts for readers that never mention God at all, I don't think. Um, but I think, you know, in, in our current moment, especially this wild year plus that we've all had, mm. um, I see a real a real urgency for structure that can be trusted and not restrictive. So, you know, I think we're all looking for how do we, how do we structure what seems like this like endless markless span of time and how do we mark our days and bring meaning to our days? So writers who can come at that to say, here's like a spiritual practice that could help you with that. Or here's a, you know, a, just a you know, lifestyle habit that could help you with that. Or here's a, some mindfulness practices or physical practices, whatever, whatever the case may be. Books that can form us and teach us how to bring structure into our lives where we need it in a way that's life-giving, again, and not restrictive and not like dogmatically fusty. <laughs> I love that. I have some very specific requests though, Tish, from the market. And the market <laughs> never, it doesn't really listen to me. So I don't know why. I don't even know, I know. who the, I don't, I can't even put a face to the market. I don't have the market's right. phone number. So it's not <laughs> like I can text her and say, do this. Um, man, I, I've really been talking about this a lot um, with various people, you included. Um, I just, I, you know, I love fiction. I've always loved fiction. I, if, if I could not love fiction, I would choose to not, not love fiction. Like I, there's everything about it is I love it. I, everything, if I could lock myself in a room of fiction and be away from the world forever, I would do it. Um, yeah. It, wife and kids excluded, of course. Um, but that said, I, I mean, I just, I wish that and to Stephanie's point, like I, I feel the need to, to really um, understand the work of formation, particularly human and spiritual formation, which I, I'm going to separate those for now into like two separate buckets, but just like the work of forming a good life, of, of being a good character, a good person at work in the world, and the, the work of forming a robust spirituality and spiritual life, um, regardless of how you want to tag that. Like, I wish we had more stories like that told through fiction. And I know that that mm -hmm. exists. I mean, I've read it. I, you know, one of the, the authors that I love that I think does this really well is David Mitchell, um, the English uh, writer who, who sort of connects all his worlds um, and his exploration of, of just sort of, sort of human being in the midst of this like very overtly spiritual, um, although nondescript spiritual milieu, he does it so well. Um, and I just wish there were more of that. We, we um, watched, I made my kids watch The Life of Pi this weekend. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Amazing book, amazing yep. film. Yep. Um, and it's stuff like that. Like when we watched that, I forgot how good that story was and how robust it was from both a human formation and a spiritual formation perspective. Um, and then brought together in this sort of beautiful written story and word, it kind of um, got, got at it from the back door. And one of the things that's really um, 
almost disheartening to me as I read more and more modern literary fiction. I read a lot of literary fiction, you know, and, and maybe it's the genre that I read, you know, I, I come across these gems like, you know, uh, city on fire. I, I thought it was a gem. Um, but it seems like so much of the modern work is about deconstruction and less about building something of substance that points to beauty mm-hmm. and goodness. Um, mm-hmm. And that's what I want more of. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's good. I mean, to answer my own question, the phrase that came to mind before I even answered it was kind of the same thing. What I'm after is more um, wholesome, magical realism. And so when I say wholesome, I don't just mean like read a G or <laughs> like, yeah. you know, no Baudry scenes, although that is much needed. I mean, like makes us more whole, like makes us more human. And I think the magical realism, that's one of my favorite genres. It's this mm-hmm. genre that helps us suspend belief because I think we all want that a little bit when we read, even if we don't realize we want it, we want it. Um, but it's still grounded in the reality of what we know to be true. So we think of some of these stories we love the most that feel a little bit like almost out of the ordinary, and yet they're so ordinary, they just come alive because of that. So it's not necessarily a Lord of the Rings transporting to another dimension. It's the Harry Potter, like that could actually be right behind a brick wall. And Mm -hmm. what does it tell us about our own life that makes us feel more, it points us more to wholeness. You know, so I feel like we just have a dearth of that in our modern writing. And this could yeah. be a whole separate topic. But um, I don't know. That's That to me is what I feel like is missing more of in the space. And when you do find them, you hold on to them and they kind of mm-hmm. won't let you go. And I think that's a great way to put it, Seth. These books that deconstruct, which we are seeing a lot of in the faith space, um, are all, you know, they have their space. But I wonder if the ones that will sure. really stick with us because they help us remember we're not alone are the ones that help the reader then take the pieces left on the ground that where they can start to reconstruct um, and not leave them just, you know, with a mess, you know, that they're standing in rubble. Um, Maybe that's what we all like a little bit more than we realize. I want your book list or your, you know, (laughs) shelfie of that genre, Tish. That sounds Mm -hmm. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Those are my favorites. It made me think I would tag onto that too. Um, just more books that uh, indulge play and the play mm. of writing. And mm, um, the one that comes to my mind that I bought for a number of people, um, you know, two Christmases ago after it came out is Nathan Pyle's Stranger Planet. Hmm. Are you familiar with it? Okay. No. It's comics. And ah. it's comics. The whole concept is um, aliens who are doing human things, but don't know the human language for like (laughs) the daily things we do, like (laughs) flossing and uh, fighting with our partner over what Netflix show to watch. It's so funny and creative and lighthearted, but clever in a way that is not just like mindless entertainment. It's very clever and creative. And you, you can just tell by looking at it, he had so much fun playing in this world. Yeah. So nice. I would, I think that would be, that's high on my list too. I'm, I'm going to have to look into that. So that brings uh, us to probably the, the most important question, which is, do you guys both floss daily? <laughs> oh my you word. Don't, you don't have to answer that if you don't want <laughs> Oh gosh. I'm yeah. Spotlight. Maybe I hope my dentist isn't a listener, but I, I want to be that person. I floss. Hmm. How about this? I floss at least several times a week. Is that good enough? That's Is that adulting great. enough? That's yeah. very adult. Yeah. yeah but High scores. Thanks. But not as much as I should. What about you? You have to own it now. Well, I had to switch to a water pick because the truth was I'm terrible <laughs> at flossing, but it's super adult and important. And so finally I was like, screw this. I'm not doing this little piece of string between my teeth anymore. And I got a water pick. Uh-huh. And uh, my dentist says that that's actually just fine. That that's fine if yeah. I do it every day. And I do. So yeah, I do. Seth, we're going to have to talk more about that offline because I got the water pick, used it once, and it has terrified me ever since. (laughs) So we're going to have to discuss. (laughs) Well, we can definitely do that. I will say that the second time I used it, I accidentally turned it on while it was pointed at my eye, and that was not a pleasant (laughs) experience. That's Um, that's 
Fantastic. Well, a water pick is on my 10-year-old's wish list, weirdly. Like, he has an Amazon list, and he put a water pick on. So maybe it it's fun, more fun than flossing. I don't know. Hmm. I, I, I think it's more fun. I feel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's more fun than flossing, for sure. All right. Well, I think <laughs> that that means that we've probably come to the end of this episode now that we know um, what you're drinking and how much we all floss. Um, and so that means we're coming up against this question, our favorite question. Um, and let's start with Stephanie this time. Stephanie, what's one thing that you're reading, watching, or listening to that's bringing some kind of beauty, truth, or goodness to your life? Reading, watching, or listening. Um, well, I should say reading. So I <laughs> I have been uh, rereading. We've been talking about magical realism. I've been rereading Joan Didion's Year of Magical Thinking. Mm. And... I, th- I feel like the past year is a great occasion to reread old books. Um, so I've been trying mm-hmm. to do more of that. And this one, I especially wanted to reread it because the first time I read it, read it, quote unquote, I listened to it on audio. And I just don't like audio because I can't underline mm-hmm. things and I have a very yeah. visual memory. So if I can't, remember where my underlines are in the book it's like i don't even remember the book at all yeah mm-hmm. and i can't go back and revisit it and like find my bearings again this is like embarrassing but i actually i i started listening to the goldfinch on audio and i was so mm-hmm. i was like stop i cannot not underline this woman's sentences <laughs> so i had so like you know three hours into listening i had to like just call it quits and buy the book and then when i got the book i went back and like underlined the places that i remembered it was just i don't know i'm finicky so mm-hmm. um so that's been great it's been uh yeah just a, a classic book on grief and how you and coping yeah. so that's been a yeah a, a a good and timely sobering but but really solid book to reread at the moment um confession i've never read goldfinch i've never read the goldfinch never not haven't started haven't looked at page one of it i mean i think i even own a copy donna tart can write about a dog crossing the street and i will be like can i do a master's (laughs) class on that sentence (laughs) yeah i've heard some of her i've heard some diehards actually like her other stuff a little more hmm I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the secret history is pretty pretty up there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I cool. I feel really bad. It's it's one of those gaps. You know, you have these sort of literary gaps that you haven't not explored. That's one of mine. And so I'm just confessing it to everyone here. And if you want to get in the comments uh, wherever you listen to this and <laughs> curse me out, that's fine. You do that. You do you, know you ma'am. But I'm a big believer in no shame for people who haven't read great books, because that just means you get to read them still. And it's yes. a very subtle shift in thinking. But you know how sometimes when, you know, you find out or you're embarrassed to admit some kind of classic that you've never read, that you yes. feel like you should have to be a yes. responsible human being. To me, the response should be, I can't believe you haven't read that yet. It's like, oh, what a treat you have in front yes. of you. And so that's so, what I think about what you I think saying. I love that. You know, Stephanie, I know this um, writer and professor named Dan Taylor, Daniel Taylor. Um, and, you know, Dan's taught all kinds of stuff. And I remember the first time I was sitting down with him and I asked him if he had read a certain book. And I don't even remember what it was, but it was a classic. Like the three of us have probably read this book. And he taught literature for years at the collegiate level. And he said, nope, actually, I've never read that. And I just kind of like looked at him quizzically like what a weird way to say it and he's like you know what i don't apologize anymore for the books i haven't read and i just thought it was so refreshing i thought man there's the guy that i want to be when i'm dan's age however old he is <laughs> i respect that. I love it i respect you so tish cool. tell me what mm-hmm. is one thing that you're listening uh watching or reading listening to mm-hmm. watching or reading um that is bringing some goodness truth beauty to your life 
Well, I like, Stephanie, that you said rereading, because you're right. I have been rereading more, at least in 2021, than I have before. I usually don't reread books very often because I feel like there's too many I still want to read. But um, after our chat last week, Seth, I pulled this off my shelf. It's probably my favorite book on writing, and it's called um, Escaping into the Open by Elizabeth Berg. Mm -hmm. And Elizabeth Berg is one of my favorite fiction writers. She was one of the first, like adult writers I got into in high school. Like I felt like a grown up for choosing to read an adult writer on my own. And her writing is really accessible. It's not very highbrow and in all the right ways. And so this is her writing about a little bit about the business of it, but a lot more like 90% more about the craft of writing. Mm. And I appreciate her take because she's a regular person, if you know what I mean. Like she was a nurse, a registered nurse for 20 years before she published her first piece in a magazine. And of course, this is back in the day when you like had to mail in stuff. So the business side of it is a completely different game than it is now. But she did it for the love of it, like kind of what we've been talking about, that she just had to get these thoughts out. And it turned out she had a knack for resonating with other people in the same way. And so this is how she accidentally launched a second career is just because she wrote a piece because she wanted to. So it's a great, and it's super short. It's a great book about writing. I want to say just for fun, even though there's some business side to it, she has recipes in here that she recommends for like, this is good to pair with this kind of writing, you know, like consider making, I don't know. So she just has fun with writing. And I think we need more of that. So um, yeah, Escaping into the Open by Elizabeth Berg. She's fantastic. That's awesome. That's... I've never never heard of that book. She's great. All right. So what about you? Apo- I'm not apologizing that I've never heard about that book either. Because <laughs> I'm being like, Good. Dan. Because you haven't read it yet. You That's might right. like it. There That's you go. Right. Okay, Seth. What about you? What are you reading, watching, or listening to these days? Well, I am I, I'm actually doing things on all fronts that are uh, bringing uh, beauty, truth, and goodness to my life. This week, I'm not watching TV shows about murder, Mormon murder. Uh, (laughs) Mormon murder is good. I've decided to go a little bit brighter this week. Aim um, higher. After after some feedback from my wife in particular. (laughs) Um, I am reading Wynn Collier's new book called Burning in My Bones. I just started it because I just got it last week. Um, it is the authorized biography of Eugene Peterson, um, who is a pastor. And, you know, people say all the time to me, well, now that you're uh, Catholic, are you not going to read, you know, my work anymore? And I'm like, come on, man, this, don't be ridiculous. There are beautiful, wonderful, amazing things that we learn, um, you know, from all kinds of writers, all kinds of people in all kinds of spaces. And I'm telling you, first of all, uh, Wynn has done something extraordinary um, he has gone through Peterson's journals. He's interviewed all the right people. He's painted a portrait of Peterson that I'm not sure um, anybody's done before. You know, hmm. Eugene Peterson was a was a pastor. He was a writer. He he's kind of one of those writers. It's a little bit unfair um, because he could write with theological acuity. Um, like the sharpness of a knife, but he also was like a born poet. And so his sentences are just alive and wonderful. And I think, you know, this may not be fair, but for the, you know, the average reader, I think to some degree, he sort of hid behind that. Um, It was a very private, very quiet uh, person to some degree, um, at least later in his life. And and I think Wynn has actually done something really special by, you know, painting this sort of more nuanced, alive human uh, portrait that was authorized by Eugene before he died. And so um, it's a wonderful book. It's a great book. I recommend it for really any listener. I don't care mm. if you um, are a person of faith, if you're not a person of faith, if you're a Protestant, if you're a Catholic, if you're you know, the average Buddhist listening, I don't care. It is a really well done piece of work um, that really should be read. Great. I love it. I love Eugene Peterson. And I don't know when, but I know you're a good friend of his. And he seems like, I don't know, he just seems like the right guy to write this kind of book. Yeah, he is the right guy to to write the book. And you know, why he wrote the book, and I think this is fascinating, is he had gotten to know Eugene a little bit over the years. And um, he had just had this, this nagging feeling that somebody needed to tell Peterson's story and that Peterson wasn't going to tell Peterson's story. 
uh, really, um, in the complexity. And so he just called him up and said, I think I'd like to write your bi- biography. Can you imagine as a writer doing that? I could never like just calling someone and being like, Hey, I'd like to write your biography. <laughs> That's pretty cool though that he did that. Yeah. That, that is, awesome. that is awesome. the right writer for the job. 100%. Yeah. That's fantastic. All right. Well, it is time to wrap this up. You can find a link for this episode as well as episode show notes and transcripts at a drinkwithafriend.com. It's also where you can sign up for our new Substack space for a drink with a friend, where Seth and I have some pretty fun extra stuff up our sleeves for you in the near future. So again, that's a drinkwithafriend.com. And also, you can always support our individual work via our newsletters. But if you'd like to support this show, you can do so at buymeacoffee.com slash drinks. It's where you can pick up the next round of drinks for just a few bucks, which helps keep the lights on around here. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us. Where can we find you? Where can people look you up and get to know you more? Thank you for having me. Um, You can find me at slantletter.com is the easy address. And um, I've also joined the Substack crew. So there's a link there. Mm-hmm. And uh, socials as mostly Stuff Duncan Smith. Nice. Very cool. All right, Seth, where can people find you? Well, again, second week in a row, um, I've just made it all so simple. Just go to SethHaines.com and you can find everything, including a clean shaven uh, photo of me. (laughs) Sign up for uh, my newsletter. Tish, where can we find you? You can find all my things in one spot at TishOxenWriter.com. That's my newsletter and socials and books and all the things. So TishOxenWriter.com. Music for the show is by Kevin McLeod. Editing is by Kyle Oxenreiter. And Caroline Tassell is our transcriber and assistant extraordinaire. I am Tish, and Seth and I will be back here with you soon. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.